0: I don't know if anyone among us has visited the Universal Studios in Los Angeles. Uh, We, of course, had to take our children there, nothing to do with any of our desires, but uh, while we were living there, we visited Universal Studios, and uh, after surviving a a river expedition on a floating raft through Jurassic Park, uh, almost being eaten by Tyrannosaurus Rex, we were looking for something a little bit more sedate and found a movie theater, uh, Shrek in 4D. I thought, well, that would be a much more sedate uh, experience and didn't know much about 4D at that time, Uh, so I guess it's better than 3D, and so we're looking uh, forward to it, and of course, it proved to be very much so. So, Uh, As soon as Donkey and Shrek climbed into a carriage and charged down a cobbled stone, we were shaking along in our seats, moving around at every corner. A few moments later, Shrek found a little spider that uh, was suspended from his web in the ceiling. And the next thing we know, this little spider is in 3D right in front of us. Uh, before we can blink, there were spiders everywhere. Before us, above us, behind us. And the next moment, they let go of their little webs and they were among us. And at that time, little puffs of air just made it very real. Uh, the shrieks of the children were masking the unnatural sounds that come, came from myself. Uh, But still, it was not over. Uh, The next moment, Donkey uh, smelled something and wanted to sneeze, and he turned right to us in 3D, right in front of us, and blasted us with his sneeze, at which time a little bit of water squirted out from the back of the chair in front of us. A little bit of Donkey spit uh, between friends. What is that? But it was quite an experience. Now, this morning... Let me transition from that into Matthew 12. Matthew 12, of course, was a chapter where Matthew recorded for us really a sad event in the life of Israel, the rejection of Jesus as their king. And with rejecting Him, they rejected the kingdom of heaven. In their rejection, the religious leaders committed really the unpardonable sin, the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, attributing the power in which Jesus performed His miracles as being from Satan. Um, then last week we we learned or we heard a challenging word uh, from Jesus about our own words, how our words really reveal our hearts, our character, who we truly are. And uh, we learned that by attributing uh, Jesus' life and ministry to Satan, that actually revealed the Pharisees to be indeed sons of, a, of the serpent, um, who was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And when he, when he spoke a lie, he speaks from his true nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. And now today from our passage, Jesus denounces Not only the Pharisees, but that generation of His day. And call them an evil and adulterous generation. Because they refused to believe the Word of God, both written and incarnate. And they ask for a sign to prove that He is the Christ. And so it's in Jesus' rebuke and correction that we find four signs of unbelief. And so I've entitled my message this morning, The Signs of Unbelief in 4D. Don't worry, there won't be any spiders coming down among you or little puffs of air or squirts of water. It's only the alliterated outline of 4Ds. The sign of unbelief in 4Ds, the, basically the desire for a sign, the disdain for grace, the descent into depravity, and the distortion of understanding. And we won't be able to cover all of those D's today. It's only two D sermon today and another two D's next week. But let us read Matthew 12, verse 38. If you are not there, please turn there and follow along as I read. Uh, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, We want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation ...at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because... ...she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man... It passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. And while he was still speaking, the crowds, behold, his mother and uh, his brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered to one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who is my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven he is my brother and sister and mother so let me read let me pray for us father we are indeed in need of your grace this morning father to hear your word we thank you for the ministry of your word we thank you for the ministry of your spirit enlightening our eyes our minds to your truth applying it to our hearts i pray lord that your word would not return void to you today, but it will accomplish all that you have purposed for it in us today, Lord, I ask, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. And so we'll just do verses 38 through to uh, really 42 this morning, and we'll look first of all at uh, the, the, the signs of unbelief. The first one is desire for signs. Desires for signs because the Pharisees and the scribes said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, to be sure, a sign of unbelief is to desire signs because the very concept of faith in God, the concept of trust, the concept of holding to something that is true about God is because God said it, not because we've seen it. We are called to live. By faith and not by sight. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And both in the Old and New Testament, believers are exhorted to live by faith, to walk by faith. And here we read that the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus asking Him for a sign. Of course, this was after He had dismantled their absurd arguments, of him working his miracles through the power of the devil, denounce them for them as for committing the sin of blasphemy. And now the scribes and Pharisees come to him with this poorly disguised courtesy, addressing him as teacher, while at the same time not believing what he's taught because they want to see a sign. The fact that he has just delivered a man possessed by a demon and through that healed him from his blindness and muteness. The fact that he has just healed a man whose hand had been withered before that he healed and cleansed lepers, that he made the blind see, that he made the lame walk, that he came to preach the gospel to the poor. These were not signs enough for them. They wanted more. More. They would probably wanted a sign from, from heaven, as they ask in Matthew 16.1. I means the Jewish leaders were, did not recognize miracles of healing necessarily as a sign. Um, they would see that as a, as a, as a miracle from, on earth, but they were looking for something spectacular from heaven that God would do in order to prove that Christ is The Messiah. But if they just had one ounce of honesty, one ounce of sincerity in them, they would have uh, searched the scriptures, they would have scrutinized Jesus' life, and they could only come to one conclusion that he, in fact, is the Son of God. He is the Son of David, he is Jesus the Christ. Now, just to be sure, for Jesus to have granted them a sign would have been wrong. Why? Because that would have placed them in the seat of determining why and when they would believe. And not God. We will only believe once this criteria has been fulfilled. And secondly, I don't believe that even if Jesus did give them a sign from heaven, that they would believe. Because they've already cemented their hearts in hatred against Him to put Him to death. And so... Really, the irony of it all is is that what they were asking was standing right in front of them, a sign from heaven. Jesus came, Emmanuel, God with us, God incarnate. And no greater sign could be asked for. And when we allow our minds just to contemplate that, that is is mind-boggling, to think that the infinite God would take on flesh to be among us. And long after Jesus' death and resurrection uh, and his ascension into heaven, Paul wrote to the Corinthians that the Jews asked for signs and the Greeks searched for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jew, a stumbling block and to Gentiles' foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and great, Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The gospel is what ought to be Believed. And so, even to this day, many are still seeking signs. I remember just recently in a visit to South Africa, uh, speaking to one of my family members, and they desperately, they said they desperately want to believe as long as if God can only give them a sign, God only show them. And you're heartbreaker that because that is unbelief. We have the Bible, people. We need to believe what God said because He is the one who said it. Now, Jesus answered the Pharisees and the scribes, but He really extended His answer beyond them to His generation, which He called an evil and adulterous generation. They were evil because they they were characterized really by ill will. They were doing evil. They were being wicked. And in the context of our passage, the greatest evil that you can commit is the evil of unbelief. Of not repenting at the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven they were a generation who professed faith in God but sought to dictate the terms and conditions of their devotion to Him. Their service to God was according to their own self-seeking desires, their own wants. They wanted what God could do for them, but they did not want Him. And they were an adulterous generation because they were unfaithful to their covenant obligations with God. You see, in the New Testament, the relationship between Christ and the church is often described as that between the groom and his bride. In the Old Testament, the relationship between Israel and God was described as God being a husband and Israel his wife. And she was a notoriously unfaithful wife to God. She constantly strayed from him after idols, running after the golden calf while their wedding vows were being drawn up. They took with them from Egypt Molech, the hideous false god to whom humans and babies were sacrificed in worship, the false god of Romphar and Baals and Asheroth. She was unfaithful to God with them all. And so during the exile, which was because of our unfaithfulness and God's part of God's covenant that if they are unfaithful, He will exile them from the land, the people moved away during that period from worshiping physical idols to really worshiping the idols of the heart. And an idol of the heart is really any and everything that you would place your trust in, your faith in, in order to give you direction, guidance. Provide provision, protection, pretty much the same as today. Today, many people, don't, we don't bow to physical idols, but many serve idols. Those things that they believe would give them what they need or desire. Now, the Jews in Jesus' day were an adulterous generation, for they, the covenant people of God, were unfaithful to him not trusting him nor his word despite centuries of evidence that his word stands forever that his word will never return to him void but accomplishes what he desires and succeeds in the matters for which he sent it they were unfaithful to god not trusting his word not His written Word, and now His Word incarnate before them. Instead, they demanded a sign, a sensational sign from heaven before they would believe. And Jesus said, that is evil and unfaithful. That generation is an evil and adulterous generation, and no sign will be given to them but the sign of Jonah the prophet because we know that God used prophets to deliver his special revelation to man it came predominantly to man through their words peter wrote in second peter 1:21 prophets are moved by the holy spirit they spoke from god and some other times the prophet himself uh, his life or events of his life served as a prophecy uh, really a prophecy of type, which then points to an archetype to be fulfilled in the future. And, and Jonah the prophet was commanded by God to go to Nineveh to prophesy about God's impending judgment on them. And he served as a prophecy of type in one of the events. Not his whole life, just that one particular event, and that is when he was swallowed by a sea monster or swallowed by a fish and remained in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights before he was spewed out, smelly but alive. And just for the record, that is not a fishy story. By Jesus quoting this, affirming the historical truth of that narrative about Jonah. But he said that that is the only sign that you will get That like Jonah, who spent three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will spend three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. The only sign that they will get really is the sign of His resurrection. Because Jesus rose from from the grave on the third day. Now, as we count days... Three days and three nights. Normally we would think, well, those are three 24 hours or periods of 24 hours, and therefore it constitutes 72 hours in total. Uh, And we don't know how long Jonah was in the belly of the feast exactly, whether it was exactly 27 hours. But we do know that the Jews, they, they counted days differently than us today. Any part of a day for them would constitute a whole day. They would speak of it as as a normal day. And we we actually see this earlier in Esther, in Esther chapter 4, verse 16, when Esther asked Mordecai to fast and pray for three days, day and night, before she would go into the king uninvited to intercede for the Jewish people under threat of genocide. And then we read in the next verse, Esther 5, verse 1, that she went in to the king on the third day. Uh, so the third day could not have been three days and, th- and the third day and the third night. And we see similar evidence of that in other apocryphal books. Tobit also recorded that uh, the Jews use a part of a day to constitute a whole day. But we also know that Jesus was crucified and buried on the Friday and then raised to life early on the Saturday, Sunday morning. And this is well attested in Scriptures, and I think I have a number of verses listed for you there on the PowerPoint. Now, the, the period of, of Jesus being in the grave falls short of how we today would understand three days. And this has led to much speculation that, that Jesus may not have been crucified on the on, on Thursday, he may have been crucified earlier um, but that we don't need to do that kind of gymnastics if we understand how the Jews counted three or their days. Uh, furthermore, that expression, three days and three nights, was, was really an, uh, an idiomatic expression just to say three days. Uh, so basically we're saying that he would be raised on the third day. But having said that, Matthew 12, 40 has caused many to suggest that Jesus was crucified earlier, perhaps on the Thursday. And though the New Testament scriptures are very clear that he was crucified on the day of preparation. Uh, the day of preparation, Paraschiu, really is the day before the Sabbath. The preparation for the Sabbath that was going to take place, of course, on, on, on the Saturday. And so using that word is is... The day of preparation is, is like using it for Friday. So when will I see you? No, I'll see you on the day of preparation. Friday uh, is how they used it. And then, of course, Jesus was definitely raised on the Sunday morning, early on Sunday morning, and that is undisputed. Um, and so that saying is merely saying that Jesus would raise on the third day. And so that is the only sign that an evil and adulterous generation will be granted, the sign of, of Jonah. And, and, and that was pretty veiled for them, certainly. And I, I don't believe they, they understood that. I don't believe his disciples understood that. So later on in the Gospels, we see Jesus expounding more and more on that, telling, him that, telling them that he would be uh, basically killed by uh, and, and, and be raised to life on the third day. And so this... He's the sign that they will have, the sign of His resurrection. And that was the sign for that evil and adulterous generation, and that is still the sign for every evil and adulterous revelation throughout all generations, that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is risen, that Jesus has ascended to heaven, and that Jesus is returning Therefore, repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And yet still today, so many insist on a sign. They want more than what God had given. They probably reason that what God did 2,000 years ago is less valid today than what it was back then. And so they demand signs and wonders today before they would believe. And the desire for signs is a sign of unbelief. They don't want to believe. They don't want to trust unless they see. And people, we can know and believe the Word of God. We have great reason to do so because His Word is bound to His character. He is a God who cannot lie. It is impossible for him to lie. And therefore, his word stands forever. Not one jot or tittle will be left unfulfilled, Jesus said. His word is truth. There is no error, no falsehood, no need for change or update. His word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. More current than tomorrow's newspaper. Powerful to accomplish what God declares it to accomplish. And so we are exhorted to believe God, to believe the word of God, to believe the gospel of Christ. Because God already authenticated His word, His gospel. Every miracle performed by God throughout all of history testify to Him as God, that He is God and His Word is truth. And so we are to stop seeking a sign and start believing the signs recorded for us in the Scriptures. Believe the sign, especially the sign of Christ's resurrection. And so often It is portrayed that those who see signs and get visions and they are the mature ones in the Lord, when in fact, the mature ones are the ones that believe the Word of God because God said it. So that's the first D of unbelief, the desire for signs, when we are called. To live by faith and not by sight. The second one is the disdain for grace. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold something greater than Solomon is here and so what do i mean by a disdain for grace what i mean is that unbelief produces a disposition towards or to a disposition to disdain the grace that god gives a disposition of contempt, a disposition of dismissal, a disregard for the grace that God gives. And the grace here, of course, is the grace of God's revelation to them. The amount of light given to this evil and adulterous generation was really extraordinary. And yet they treated it with disdain. They disregarded it. They disrespected it. And Jesus used two examples from Gentiles, now that may have sting a little bit for them, to demonstrate their guilt of disdain for God's grace. The generation of Jesus refused to believe despite incredible light, despite great revelation. They received more light, greater revelation from God than any other generation before them. They had the oracles of God, the word of God. They had Jesus the Messiah in front of them. The one who came to fulfill the law and the prophets. The one who preached the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. The one who demonstrated his power and his authority to forgive sins, to banish sickness, to bind the strong man, to bring back the dead to life, and to bring about the kingdom. And yet, They did not believe. They did did not merely receive light. They received the source of all light and truth. And all previous generations of Israel received far less light than what they saw. And of course, Peter writes of this in 1 Peter 1 when he talks about the prophets of old. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. And so that generation of Jesus, they received an incredible amount of light, far more than any generation before them. And certainly far more than any Gentile ever received throughout history at that time. And yet, the Gentiles of ages past responded with far greater faith to what they've been given, the men of Nineveh, the queen of the south, than that evil and adulterous generation. And Jesus says those ancient people will rise up on the day of judgment and their deeds, their response, the response of faith in the word of God will testify against that evil and adulterous generation. They will bear witness against them to their condemnation for their unbelief. And so Jesus mentioned here the men of Nineveh. Nineveh was an Assyrian city to which Jonah was sent to proclaim God's word to them, the word of impending doom. Now, the Assyrians were A particularly evil people. They were brutal and barbaric in wartime and in peace. And that's why Jonah ran away. That's why he ended up in the belly of a fish. He wanted God to waste them, not to warn them. He knew God being God would forgive them their atrocities should they repent, and he didn't want that. Still, Through the preaching of this reluctant prophet, through the faithful delivery of God's Word, the inhabitants of Nineveh repented in dust and ashes. That's probably one of the biggest revivals ever. Nineveh was a massive city. We we read that Jonah had traveled three days into the city before he started preaching. I assume it was to get into the middle of the city. Then Jonah 4 tells us that there were about 120,000 of those who did not know the difference between their left and their right hand. A reference to young children. And so it's hard to make accurate calculations, but we are talking here about thousands upon thousands of people within that city that came to faith and repentance. They confessed their sin. We read in Jonah 3, 5-10 that they turned away from their wicked ways, the violence in their hands, casting themselves on the mercy of God if perhaps He might relent and forgive them. And God did relent. He forgave them. Their sin. He showed them grace. He gave them grace and he showed them mercy. And we don't have to we don't have time really to unpack the magnitude of God's grace to them. Just go and research for yourself what the Assyrians were like, the atrocities they committed. It is truly shocking, and that God would forgive them at the repentance of their hearts and of their deeds and God gave them grace he sent his word to them now Jesus said on the day of judgment that men of Nineveh will rise up and will condemn that evil and adulterous generation Of his day. The day of judgment, of course, is the great white throne judgment of God at the end of the age, where the guilty, those guilty of unbelief, will be condemned to all eternity according to their works of unbelief. And that does not necessarily mean that the Ninevites will pass the verdict. I believe that's God's domain. But they will testify to their evil works, the evil works of unbelief. And that will add to their condemnation. Why? Because something far greater than Jonah was sent to them. Something really points to someone, that is Christ, and all of his ministry, the full extent of what he came to do. Jesus was far greater than what Jonah ever was. And just a quick comparison will make us see that. Nineveh had a reluctant prophet sent to them who preached one message, it seems. That generation had the Son of God, Emmanuel, sent to them who repeatedly over a three-year period preached, bid, exhort them to repent. Nineveh had a foolish And sinful, rebellious prophets sent to them. But that generation had the sinless Savior, the loving, wise, compassionate, and gracious King sent to them. Nineveh received a message of doom. Now certainly repentance must be implied, but we read just read that the message was, Within 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. There was no invitation to repent. And yet they did. That generation of Jesus, he preached the gospel of grace, of pardon, of salvation, of the kingdom of heaven. And they did not respond. Nineveh saw no miracles and no signs. To authenticate Jonah's message as from God, Jesus performed many miracles showing him to be from God. And yet they concluded that he is from Satan. Nineveh had no spiritual advantages. They had no word. They were not in covenant with God. They did not worship him. And yet they heeded the word of God through Jonah. That generation had all of that, the Word of God. They were God's covenant people. They had Christ before them, and yet they did not believe. Nineveh was in darkness and received very little light, little re- revelation, and yet they repented. That generation lived in light. They had the light of the world preached to them, but they refused to believe, They did not repent and they did not receive him as their king. That is truly evil and adulterous. And then Jesus goes on and he points out another example, a Gentile, that of the queen of the south, verse 42. The queen of the south is most likely to be the queen of Sheba, of whom we read in 1 Kings 10 and 2 Chronicles 9. Sheba was located in the southwestern tip of the Arabian Peninsula, modern-day Yemen. And she heard of Solomon's wisdom and then made that arduous journey from Sheba to Jerusalem so that she can test the knowledge of Solomon with difficult questions. She had a very inquisitive mind, and so she arrived in Jerusalem with an extraordinary amount of wealth. Gold, precious stones, spices, probably to trade. But then upon the hearing of Solomon's wisdom and his answers, and how he administrated his staff, and she sees the grace of God given to Israel through Solomon, it says that she was left breathless. She was overwhelmed. And she gifted him 120 talents of gold, approximately $600 million worth of gold in today's money. Generous lady. Not only that, she also gave him precious stones and spices, more than has ever been seen in Jerusalem. And she will rise up in testimony against the generation of Jesus. She had to come a very, very long way, about 2,000 kilometers on camelback through difficult terrain, the red-hot sun of the Arabian desert. They had Jesus with them daily. They could hear him every day. She came to hear wisdom which the Lord gave Solomon, great truth, but coming through a fallible, imperfect Fallen man. They had someone far superior to Solomon. Superior in wisdom, superior in knowledge, superior in purity and holiness. Christ in whom are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, as Colossians 2-3 reminds us. She gave generous gift willing and freely to Solomon, in a recognition of God's grace to Israel and His wisdom. They gave nothing, offered nothing. Instead, they plotted to kill Jesus. She came on the basis of hearsay, on reports from others, and she came uninvited on her own initiative, freely and willingly. They had centuries of God's Word, God's way preparing them for Christ's arrival, their king inviting them, urging them, exhorting them to come to Him daily. She searched out something special, but in comparison to Christ, Solomon was far inferior. They refused to come, refused to repent, refused to believe, refused to receive God's gift from heaven to them. She praised God for Solomon. We read in 1 Kings 10.9, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. There are some messianic terms in that. Praise that she gave. But they they plotted against God. They rejected Christ as king over them, shouting, Away! Away with him! Crucify him! We have no king but Caesar. His blood shall be on us and on our children. She came from the ends of the earth to hear the the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Her actions, her attitude will condemn that evil and adulterous generation in the day of judgment. And so the question for us is, is there a warning to us here today? I believe there is. I believe there is. Jesus warned against unbelief. An unbelief that is displayed in the desires for a sign. Unbelief that is displayed in the disdain for his grace given, his revelation given. Now, of course, the primary and first application are to those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, who have not bowed the knee before him. We have not believed that Jesus is the only Savior and that He is the Lord of Lords. And if you have not yet done so today, then let me urge you and bid you. You heard the gospel preached very well this morning from Ben. I bid you repent and believe or you will pay the penalty for your sin yourself. You will be condemned. You are here today to hear this message, and those here will rise up on that day to condemn you for not believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And there is an application for us who profess Jesus as Savior For our eternal salvation. We who profess to be children of God. Like the generation of Jesus' day. We profess Him. And yet so often we act as if we do not believe Him. We do not trust Him in the here and now. We trust Him for our eternal salvation. But we are often not so trusting in our everyday life. We don't walk in His will and according to His way. And so we profess Him with our lips, but deny Him with our deeds. That makes us professing Christians, but practicing atheists. We live as if he does not exist or has not spoken. And so I think it will serve us well to measure our response with the response of the men of Nineveh to whom very little light was given, very little revelation, while we have the full revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have knowledge and understanding of the Word of God, expounded by men of God for centuries for us. We have the testimony of God's grace in the lives of those who have turned and believed in Him, and we have seen the transformation in them, God's faithfulness to them. And we here at Grace Bible Fellowship, we've been given much, much light. We have a high view of God and a high view of His word. And so again, let us consider, each one of us, let us compare our response to the grace of God given us with the grace given to the Queen of Sheba. She traveled a long way to hear the truth. 2,000 kilometers plus from the lips of Solomon. How far are you prepared to travel to hear God's word? She sacrificed much time and comfort to hear the wisdom of God, to witness His wisdom, to experience it in action. How often do we succumb to comfort? How often do we to come to the inconvenience of coming to church, attending other ministries, grace gifts from God for us, to us. She was left breathless by the grace of God. And she responded with praise to him. When was the last time you were breathless at reading of the grace of God to us? When did we spontaneously just burst out in praise to him for what he's given us? He's the grace he's shown us. She sacrificed greatly and gave generously in response to the grace she's seen the, the privilege to see it, they may, maybe even experience it while she was there. And so God's grace to us demands all of us. God's interested in your heart, in my heart. And once He has our heart, all of the other things will be His too. Nothing will be too precious to us to withhold from Him. And so it will serve us well to discern if there is a disparity between our profession and our practice. Perhaps we have taken God's grace for granted. Perhaps we are at the risk of disdaining His grace to us. So people, we who live this side of the cross... We have come to someone far greater than Jonah or Solomon. We have come to Christ, Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel. And so let us not receive His grace in vain. Let us not harden our hearts when we hear His voice. Let us, with respect to the promise of God, not waver in unbelief, but grow strong in faith, giving glory to God, being fully assured that what God had promised, He is able also to perform. Romans four twenty to 21. Let us walk by faith. The signs of unbelief is the desire for signs and a disdain for the grace we've been given. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace. Lord, your grace in revealing your Son to us. Lord, that we may know Jesus Christ. What a privilege, Lord. What a joy that is. And Lord, we, we confess, Lord, that, that so often we, we do believe and yet we ask for help in our unbelief. We're like Peter who was walking on the water in this life and the storms around us. And we see these big waves around us and, and we take our eyes off you and, and we sink, Lord. But I praise you, Lord, that you are there to reach out and grab hold of us. Lord, help us to believe. Help us to walk in your truth. To live by your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.